Chapter 26 of the Pharaoh and the Priest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Reed All Day. The Pharaoh and the Priest by Boleslaw Proust. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin. Chapter 26. Not far from the city of Pibast stood the temple of the goddess Hathor. In the month Peony, March, April, on the day of the vernal equinox, about nine in the evening, when the star Sirius inclined towards its setting, two wayfaring priests and one penitent stopped in the gateway. The penitent, who was barefoot, had ashes on his head and was covered with a coarse cloth which concealed his visage. Though the air was clear, it was impossible to distinguish the faces of those wayfarers. They stood in the shadow of two immense statues of the cow-headed divinity, which guarded the entrance to the temple, and with kindly eyes protected the province of Habu from pestilence, southern winds, and bad overflows. When he had rested somewhat, the penitent fell with his face to the earth, and prayed long in that position. Then he rose, took a copper knocker, and struck a blow. A deep metallic sound went through all the courts, reverberated from the thick walls of the temple, and flew over the wheat fields, above the mud cottages of earth tillers, over the silvery waters of the Nile, where the faint cry of wakened birds answered it. After a long time, a murmur was heard inside, and the question, Who rouses us? Ramses, a slave of the divinity, said the penitent. For what hast thou come? For the light of wisdom. What right has them to ask for it? I receive the inferior consecration, and in great processions within the temple I carry a torch. The gates opened widely. In the centre stood a priest in a white robe. He stretched forth his hand, and said slowly and distinctly, Enter. When thou crossest this threshold, may divine peace dwell in thy soul and may that be accomplished for which thou implorest humbly. When the penitent had fallen at his feet, the priest, making some signs above his head, whispered, In the name of him who is, who has been, and who will be, who created everything, whose breath fills the visible and the invisible world, and who is life eternal. When the gate had closed, the priest took Ramses by the hand, and in the gloom amid the immense columns of the forecourt, he led him to the dwelling assigned to him. It was a small cell, lighted by a lamp. On the stone pavement lay a bundle of dry grass. In a corner stood a pitcher of water, and near it was a barley cake. I see that here I shall have rest indeed, after my occupations with the nomarchs, said Ramses joyously. Think of eternity, replied the priest, and he withdrew. This answer struck Ramses disagreeably. Though he was hungry, he did not wish to eat a cake or drink water. He sat on the grass, and looking at his feet, wounded from the journey, asked himself why he had come, why he had put himself voluntarily out of his office. Seeing the walls of the cell and its poverty, he recalled the years of his boyhood, passed at a preschool, how many blows of sticks he had received there, how many nights he had passed on a stone floor as punishment. Even then Ramses felt the hatred and fear 
which he had felt before toward that harsh priest, who to all his prayers and questions answered only with, think of eternity. After some months of uproar, to drop into such silence, to exchange the court of a prince for obscurity and loneliness, and instead of feasts, women, and music, to feel around and above him the weight of walls. I have gone mad, I have gone mad, muttered Ramses. There was a moment when he wished to leave the temple at once, but afterward he thought that they might not open the gate to him. The sight of his dirty legs, of the ashes falling out of his hair, the roughness of his penitential rags, all this disgusted him, if he had had his sword even. But would he, dressed as he was in that place, dare to use it? He felt an overpowering dread, and that sobered him. He remembered that the gods in temples send down fear on men, and that this fear must be the beginning of wisdom. Moreover, I am the viceroy and the heir of the pharaoh, thought he. Who will harm me in this temple? He rose and went out of the cell. He found himself in a broad court, surrounded by columns. The stars were shining brightly. Hence he saw at one end of the court an immense pylon, at the other an open entrance to the temple. He went thither. At the door there was gloom, and somewhere far off flamed a number of lamps, as if in the air and unsupported. Looking more attentively, he saw standing closely together, between the entrance and the lamps, a forest of columns, the tops of which were lost in darkness. At a distance, perhaps two hundred yards from him, he saw indistinctly the giant legs of a sitting goddess with her hands resting on her knees, from which the lamplight was reflected dimly. All at once he heard a sound from afar. From a side passage, a row of white figures pushed forth, moving in couples. This was a night procession of priests who, singing in two choruses, gave homage to the statue of the goddess. I am he who created heaven and earth and made all things contained in them. I am he who created the waters and the great overflow, he who made for the bull his mother whose parent he himself is. I am he who made heaven and the secrets of its horizon. As to the gods, I it was who placed their souls in them. I am he who when he opens his eyes there is light in the world, and when he closes them darkness is present. The waters of the Nile flow when he commands, but the gods do not know what his name is. The voices, indistinct at first, grew stronger, so that each word was audible, and when the procession disappeared, the words scattered among the columns, growing ever fainter. At last every sound ceased. And still those people, thought Ramses, not only eat, drink, and gather wealth, they really perform religious services even in the night time. Though, how was that to affect the statue? The prince had seen more than once the statues of boundary divinities bespattered with mud by the inhabitants of another province, or shot at from bows or slings by mercenary soldiers. If gods are not offended by insult, they must also care little for prayers and processions. Besides, who has seen gods? said the prince to himself. The immensity of the temple, its countless columns, the lamps burning in front of the statue, all this attracted Ramses. He wished to look around in that mysterious immensity, and he went forward. 
Then it seemed to him that some hand from behind touched his head tenderly. He looked around. No one was there. So he went further. This time the two hands of some person seized him by the head. And a third, a great hand, rested on his shoulder. Who is he? cried the prince. And he rushed in among the columns. But he stumbled and almost fell. Someone caught him by the feet. Again terror mastered Ramses more than in the cell. He fled distracted, knocking against columns which seemed to bar the way to him, and darkness closed around the man on all sides. O oh, save, holy goddess, save me, whispered he. At this moment he stopped. Some yards in front of him was the great door of a temple through which the starry sky was visible. He turned his head. Amid the forest of gigantic columns, lamps were burning and the gleam of them was reflected faintly from the bronze knees of the holy Hathor. The prince returned to his cell, crushed and excited, his heart throbbed like that of a bird caught in a net. For the first time in many years he fell with his face to the earth, and prayed ardently for favour and forgiveness. Thou wilt be heard, answered a sweet voice above him. Ramses raised his head quickly, but there was no one in the cell. The door was closed, the walls were thick. He prayed on therefore more ardently, and fell asleep in that position, with his face on the stones and his arms extended. When he woke next morning, he was another man. He had experienced the might of the gods, and favour had been promised. From that time, through a long series of days, he gave himself to devotional exercises, with faith and a clarity. In his cell he spent long hours over prayers, he had his head shaven and put on priestly garments, and four times in twenty-four hours he took part in a chorus of the youngest priests. His past life, taken up with amusements, roused in him aversion, and the disbelief which he had acquired amid foreigners and dissolute youth filled him with dread in that interval. And if that day the choice had been given to take either the throne or the priestly office, he would have hesitated. A certain day the great prophet of the temple summoned the prince and reminded him they had not entered for prayers exclusively, but to learn wisdom. The prophet praised his devotion, declared that he was purified then from worldly foulness, and commanded him to become acquainted with the schools connected with that temple. Rather through obedience than curiosity, the prince went directly from him to the interior court, where the department of reading and writing was situated. There was a great hall, lighted through an opening in the roof. On mats, some tens of naked pupils were seated holding wax tablets in their hands. One wall was of smooth alabaster. Before it stood a, a teacher who wrote characters with chalks of various colours. When the prince entered, the pupils, almost all of the same age that he was, fell on their faces. The teacher bowed and stopped his actual labour to explain to the youths the great meaning of knowledge. My beloved, said he, a man who has no heart for wisdom must occupy himself with handwork and torment his eyesight. But he who understands the worth of knowledge and forms himself accordingly may gain all kinds of power and every court office. Remember this. Look at the wretched fate of men unacquainted with writing. A smith is black and grimy. His hands are full of lumps and he toils night and day all his lifetime. The quarryman pulls his arms out to satisfy his stomach, 
the mason, while forming a capital in lotus shape, is hurled off by wind from the scaffold. A weaver has bent knees. A maker of weapons is ever traveling. Barely does he come to his house in the evening when he must leave it. The fingers of a war painter smell disagreeably, and his time passes in trimming up trifles. The courier, when taking farewell of his family, must leave a will, for he may have to meet wild beasts or Asiatics. I have shown you the lot of men of various labors, for I wish you to love writing, which is your mother, and now I will present to you its beauties. It is not an empty word on earth, it is the most important of all occupations. He who makes use of writing is respected from childhood. He accomplishes every great mission, but he who takes no part in it lives on in wretchedness. School sciences are as difficult as mountains, but one day of them lasts through eternity. So learn quickly, and you will love them. The scribe has a priestly position. His pen and his book win him wealth and acceptance. After a sounding discourse on the dignity of knowledge, a discourse which Egyptian pupils had heard without change for three millenniums, the master took chalk and on the alabaster wall began to write the alphabet. Each letter was expressed through a number of hieroglyphs or a number of demotic characters. The picture of an eye, a bird, or a panther signified A. A sheep or a pot, B. A man standing, or a boat, K. A serpent, R. A man sitting, or a star, S. The abundance of signs expressing each sound made the art of reading or writing extremely laborious. Ramses was queried by mere listing, during which the only relief was when the teacher commanded some pupil to draw, or to name some letter, and beat him with a cane when he failed in his effort. Taking farewell of the teacher and the pupils, the prince from the school of scribes passed to the school of surveyors. There they taught youth to draw plans of fields, which were for the most part rectangular, also to take the elevation of land by means of two lathes and a square. In this department also they explained the art of writing numbers, no less involved in hieroglyphic or demotic characters. But pure arithmetical problems formed a higher course and were solved by means of bullets. Ramses had enough of this, and only after some days would he visit the school of medicine. This was also a hospital, or rather great garden, containing a multitude of fragrant plants and trees. Patients passed whole days in the open air and in sunlight, on beds where strips of stretched canvas took the place of mattresses. The greatest activity reigned when the prince entered. Some patients were bathing in a pond of running water. Attendants were rubbing one man with fragrant ointments and burning perfumes before another. There were some who they had put to sleep by looking at them and by stretching out their bodies. One patient was groaning while they were setting his sprained ankle. To a certain woman who was grievously sick, the priest was giving some mixture from a goblet while uttering an enchantment which had power in connection with this remedy. Go, cure, go, drive that out of my heart, out of my members. Then the prince, in company with a great leech, went to the pharmacy, where one of the priests was preparing cures from plants, honey, olive oil, from the skins of serpents and lizards, from the bones and fat of beasts. When Ramses questioned him, 
the man did not take his eyes from the work. He looked continually and ground the materials, uttering a prayer as he did so. Thou hast cured Isis, thou hast cured Isis, thou hast cured Horus. O Isis, great enchantress, make me well, free me from all evil, from harmful red things, from fever of the god, from fever of the goddess. O Shanagat, Enagat, Sini, Erokat, Kararachagat, Haparuka, Haparuka, Haburua. What is he saying? asked the priest. A secret, answered the leech, putting his finger on his lips. When they came out to an empty court, Ramses said to the great leech, Tell me, holy father, what is the art of curing, and what are its methods? For I have heard that sickness is an evil spirit which shuttles in a man and torments him, because it is hungry until it receives the food that it wishes, and that one evil spirit or sickness feeds on honey, another on olive oil, and a third on the excreta of animals. A leech, therefore, should know first what spirit has settled in the sick man, and then what kind of nourishment is required by that spirit, so that it should not torture the patient. The priest thought a while, and then answered, What sickness is, and in what way it falls on the human body, I cannot tell, O Ramses. But to thee I will explain, for thou hast been purified, how we govern ourselves in giving medicine. Suppose it give a man to be sick in the liver. We priests know that the liver is another star, penitent diva, that the cure must depend on that star. But here the sages are divided into two schools. Some assert that it is necessary to give the man who is sick in his liver things over which penitent diva has influence. Therefore copper, lapis lazuli, extract of flowers, above all, verbonia and valerian, finally various parts of the body of the turtle dove and the goat. Other leeches consider that when the liver is diseased, it is necessary to cure it with just the opposite remedies, and the opponent of penitent diva being sabac, to give quicksilver, emerald and agate, hazelwood and colt's foot, also parts of the body of a toad and an owl rubbed in powder. But this is not all, for it is necessary to think of the day, the month and the hour of the day, for each of these spaces of time are under the influence of a star which must support or weaken the action of the medicine. Besides, it is needful to remember what star and what sign of the zodiac rules the sick person. Only when the leech considers all these can he prescribe an infallible remedy. And do ye help all sick people in the temple? The priest shook his head. No, the mind of man, which should take in all these details of which I have spoken, makes mistakes very easily. And what is worse, envious spirits, the geniuses of other temples, jealous of their fame, frequently hinder the leech and destroy the effect of his medicines. The result, therefore, may be that one patient will return to perfect health, another simply grows better, while a third remains without change. Though there happen some who will become still sicker or even die, this is as the gods will. The prince listened with attention, but confessed in his soul that he did not understand greatly. All at once he recalled the object of his visit to the temple, and inquired of the great leech unexpectedly, Ye were to show me, holy father, the secret of the treasure of the pharaoh. Was it those things which we have seen? By no means. We know nothing of state affairs. But when the great seer comes, the holy priest, Penitur, 
he will remove the, from thy eyes the curtain. Ramses took leave of the leech with increased curiosity as to what they were to show him. End of chapter 26